Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer to ask His guidance and direction on our study of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have Your Word, that down through the centuries You have revealed Yourself to us through the apostles and prophets, and You have also preserved Your Word so that we have it And an accurate translation, we have it preserved in the original language so that we can be sure of what you have revealed to us and that we can come to understand you and understand who we are uh, more clearly. Father, as we study your word, it is God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, who enables us to understand your word, who stores it in our soul, and who reminds us of these eternal truths and doctrines that we may apply them on a consistent basis. It is through the study of your word that our thinking is shaped and that uh, our responses to the vicissitudes of life are impacted. Father, we pray that you would enable us to think more clearly, more precisely, more accurately about life from the framework of your word, and that as we continue our study that you might help us to understand even more how you are in control of the details of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by way of introduction this morning by turning to a passage in the Old Testament that's familiar to most of you, and that's in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and I want to look at the first two verses. These are probably familiar to many of you. If you have ever spent much time memorizing a scripture, These are usually among the first 10 or 15 uh, passages that uh, people try to memorize. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul is making a shift in his discourse in Romans. He has spent 11 chapters dealing with the implications of God's righteousness, the fact that God is a righteous God, which has to do with the standards of his character, that he is the definition of righteousness. And the outworking of that is referred to in terms of justice. The uh, righteousness is a standard of God. Justice is the application of that standard. And now in Romans 12, 
verse 1, he makes a shift to, to application. took 11 chapters to deal with the uh, realities, and now he says, Therefore, and beginning in verse 1, Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the, there's not a specific imperative verb here, but between the main verb to I beseech you to do something and the, um, the infinitive verb to present, we have the idea of expressing a mandate, expressing a standard for every single believer. He says you present your bodies not because he is thinking in terms of the fact that it is our physical body for a physical sacrifice, but he's using the term body to refer to the entire uh, person. This is typical in Scripture where you will have an individual referred to maybe in terms of their soul or their spirit or their body where one of the aspects of the person is used to stand for the whole of the person. And the call here is that we present our bodies to God. The word that is used here in the Greek is paristemi, and paristemi is a word that means, has the idea of presenting yourself to someone, offering, many times it's used, it's the verb used to describe uh, presenting an offering or a sacrifice to God. In some cases it's used of a servant who's putting himself at the disposal of his master, that he might be used of his master in any number of ways. Uh, With the use of the word living sacrifice here as also reasonable service, I think that the word uh, is a probably has a, a full sense here and either implication either as the sense of offering a sacrifice or uh, service are both uh, evident within the meaning of the word, but both ideas are made more clear by the vocabulary used in this uh, in the next two uh, next two clauses. We are to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, meaning that we put His will over our will. And this is our reasonable service. We are saved to serve God. Now, that is the positive command. We are to present ourselves to God, recognizing that we have been bought with a price, as Paul argues in Romans 6. And this verb, paristemi, is used three times in Romans 6, emphasizing the idea that we are to present ourselves to be used by God for the sake of expressing his righteousness through us. Uh, We are, uh, the positive is that we are to present ourselves to him for service. The negative is stated in the next verse. We are not to be conformed uh, to the world. We are not to be conformed to the world or with the world. And the Greek verb that's used here is su schematizo. Now, schema is where we get our English word scheme indicating a scheme or a plan or a pattern. So we are not to, the idea of conform comes with the uh, combination with the uh, prepositional prefix there soon in indicating that we are not to fit ourselves according to a particular scheme or plan of action. And that plan of action is expressed as the world, the 
the word here that's used is not the one we're usually familiar with for world, which is cosmos, but it is a word, ionos, that indicates through the ages. That is what the thinking that dominates all of the ages. And as we've studied so many times in the past, there are really only two ways to think about reality. There's God's way and there's the creature's way. or there's, there's the creator's way and the creature's way. The creature's way is manifested first or was manifested first historically in terms of the arrogant rebellion of the creature uh, Lucifer, who we usually refer to as Satan, the one who is the accuser and the opposer of God. This set a pattern the first time anyone in any creature had opposed God in eternity past, and Lucifer then used his influence and his uh, ability to deceive to win over approximately a third of the angels to his side. This set up a conflict, an invisible conflict to us, uh, in the heavenlies among uh, the angelic beings among the those whom God created first. In that, from what we deduce from Scripture, there was, must have been some sort of trial. For in Matthew twenty five forty one, the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the lake of fire, which has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know that the lake of fire is, has already been created. It is already awaiting the devil and his angels, indicating that they have already been uh, judged in terms of the handing down of a verdict and assigning a penalty. The question then uh, comes up, why is it that that penalty has not been enacted? Why aren't they in the lake of fire? And the answer that we have is that uh, that verdict was postponed because in some way Satan challenged the veracity of the verdict, the righteousness of the verdict, something along the lines of how can a righteous God and a loving God send his creatures to such a horrible death that for uh, an unending, never-ending period of time, they will suffer the horrors of the lake of fire. How can a loving God do that? And so God, in his grace and in his wisdom, decided to demonstrate why his righteousness would demand such a horrible penalty. And so what God did was to create the human race as a test case to demonstrate through the human race the importance of the creature's complete and total obedience to God that when there is disobedience, even in what we might consider to be the most minor or innocuous way, the ramifications, the unintended consequences of that rebellion is so horrible and so extensive that an an everlasting punishment in the lake of fire is the only just retribution. And we see this demonstrated in the Garden of Eden when God just had one test there for Adam and the woman, and that was to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in the act of eating, when Eve ate and then Adam ate, that had that brought sin into the human race and into this creation that God had created from Genesis 1, 2, and following that was a perfect creation 
when sin entered into that, it not only resulted in the spiritual fall and collapse of Adam and Eve, it not only resulted in the corruption of all of their descendants, but it also had an impact that reverberated throughout all a physical reality. It affected geology, it affected meteorology, it affected uh, the universe. It, it just sent a shock wave through everything in the universe. And so that now man, the creature, began to emulate the original sin of Satan before God had ever created the human race. And so once again, you had the creature acting independently of God and thinking in terms of his own frame of reference rather than in terms of what God had revealed to him. So it is this way of thinking, thinking of the creature that somehow he can understand creation completely apart from God, thinking that he can be the source of his own absolutes as to what is ultimately right and wrong. And it is the uh, arrogant thinking of the creature that somehow he has become the ultimate reference point in the universe rather than God that is at the core of what the Bible refers to as worldly thinking. The Greek word cosmos has to do with the orderliness, the organization of that thought, the idea of Ionos, translated the same way, has the idea of how it extends throughout human history. The thinking of the world in terms of the various civilizations that have been on, uh, on the pages of history. So we are not to be conformed or fit into the mold of those civilizations. And so this brings in the idea of different cultures. There are different cultures through different periods of history, and each culture manifests the rebellious thinking of the creature in different ways. And so Paul says that on the one hand, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, but that is done by not being conformed or pressed into the mold of the thinking of our Time period. The Germans have another word for that called zeitgeist, the thinking of the age. So we're not to be conformed to the thinking of the age, but we are to be transformed, and this is the Greek word metamorpho, indicating a complete change of the very form or essence of thought. That Greek word uh, morphe, uh, that is translated form, has to do with the uh, in, in Greek philosophical thought, had to do with the very essence or core reality of things. And so what Paul says here is extremely profound. It's not just changing the external details of our lives, but it is trans, trans, being transformed at the most rudimentary levels of our thinking, that this is what has to be changed. We are to be transformed, and this is done by... Uh, the renovation or overhaul of our thinking. What, it's not just what we think, but it's how we think. It is the structure of our thought. And this is a very difficult concept for a lot of people to get their mental fingers around because it's, it's, it's tough enough just to think. I mean, we can just look around and come up with lots of examples on a day-to-day -day basis. Just watch the evening news sometime or I watch Jay Leno go out and interview people on the street and ask them what they, uh, who certain people are that are in the news a lot, and they don't know anything. So we obviously see lots of examples. It's very difficult for people to think. But when you start thinking about how you think, 
Thinking is then something very, very difficult to do. Do you think in terms of pure rationalism? Do you think in terms of pure empiricism? Do you think in terms of pure mysticism? And a lot of people, most of us, think in terms of a mix of the three. Some, one of those three will be a little more uh, on top than others. But the more emotional our culture has become, which has been the trend for the last hundred years or so, as pure rationalism and pure empiricism have been rejected philosophically and we've just shifted into more of a pragmatism, that is, if it works, it must be right, or we shift into some sort of uh, existentialism or, as it's also called today, postmodernism, and all of these just simply reflect trends and ideas that just get new packages and new names, but they all go back to the kind of thinking that Satan manifested at, uh, at his original fall, which is ex- exerting the creature's independence of the creator, and that whatever the creator says in terms of defining reality must be evaluated and judged by, by the creature. So we have to learn to have different thoughts and to think about that in different ways. Now, the only way you can do that is to exchange the old for the new. And that only comes if there is a source of information or data that can come in and instruct us and teach us into the, the, the differences. That's why the teaching of the Word of God is so fundamental. It's Sunday morning, uh, midweek Bible classes, whatever the, mo- the time may be, the focus is always learning something toward the end of changing our thinking. That's what church is all about. Within that, we also are encouraged or strengthened or challenged Exhorted, all of these different things are subcategories, but the primary purpose of the ministry of the local church is to enable the sheep to exchange the old way of thinking for a new way of thinking, so the focus needs to be on thought. That's why one of the reasons you have a manifestation today in many churches of a lot of singing and other things that go on that do not emphasize much thought is because people are in a subjective emotional rebellion against this because it's much easier to sit and emote in church than it is to sit and think in church. And so those who want to emphasize the teaching of God's Word and learning God's Word are running more and more against the grain in terms of the trends of our culture. But this is not anything new. We've seen these same things go on uh, throughout our study of the Old Testament in both First and Second Kings, and we see it in the episode uh, that we're focusing on today. So I want to use this as our opening illustration to provide a framework of thought. And now let's go back to our main passage in Second Kings, chapter uh, 22. Second Kings, chapter 22. We started here last time, and I focused on uh, what it was that provided the uh, core element for the change that took place under the uh, new king that we're studying, that is uh, Josiah. And that was the discovery of the law, that his fa- uh, actually his grandfather, uh, Manasseh, had been king for 55 years, and during most of that time, he was bent on the destruction of anything related to the worship of the God of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob, so that it was, he, he uh, persecuted and executed many of the prophets of that day, including the prophet Isaiah. He destroyed the worship of God. He brought idols, false idols, the uh, idols to the uh, Baal and to the Asherah within the temple. And he built the various high places and alternate worship sites all over the kingdom of Judah. And anyone who brought up the name of God and anyone who taught the truth was uh, persecuted, if not executed, under that regime. It was only at the very end, after God brought discipline into his life, and he was taken as a captive for several years to Assyria, that Manasseh turned back to the Lord and began to reverse course. But then he died, and he was replaced by his son Amnon, Ammon, who was 22 years old. We read about him at the end of chapter 21. And he again did evil on the side of the Lord and took the people back to all of the uh, evil that had been done originally by Manasseh. So for 57 years, basically, the southern kingdom of Judah had been in uh, rank idolatry and apostasy and rebellion against God. So much so that nobody even knew what the Bible said anymore. They didn't know what the law said. They didn't know anything about the uh, promises that God made regarding uh, punishment. Uh, to those who disobeyed the law, and so uh, now that um, now now that uh, Manasseh and Ammon were dead, we had this new king Josiah. He began to introduce some changes. He began to destroy some of the idols in the high places, as we learn. But it wasn't until he had been king for 18 years that the law was rediscovered in the temple. And that's where we, uh, what we studied last time and brought us sort of up to date with where we are uh, today. Josiah became king, we're told, at the beginning of chapter 22 when he was eight years old. When he was 12, he began to enact some of these reforms. And we learn from Second Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 7, what those reforms entail. But those seven verses really talk about what he began to do, and it's a summary of what he does even after uh, the law is discovered. He didn't do all of those things before the law was discovered. He did, but he began to clean things up before the law was discovered. And then once the law was discovered, we'll see uh, what else he did as we see in this passage. But after the law was discovered and they read the law, and they realized what the divine consequences were going to be, what the divine punishment would be on the nation because of their idolatry. They wanted to get an additional word from God to confirm exactly when or how this would take place. And so we read in verse 13 that they were told to go and inquire of the Lord for me, this is Josiah speaking, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. They understood that the reason for punishment isn't because there was some uh, whimsical deity that just felt like uh, now is a good time to punish them, but that there were standards that were laid down in the Torah, and in the Torah God specifically stated what the consequences would be if they failed to be obedient. So this um, committee was sent to inquire 
uh, just what would happen. And they went to Huldah the prophetess in verse 14. Hilkiah the priest, accompanied by Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Aziah, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah. All of these details simply locate her in real history. She's not just some sort of made-up, legendary figure, but she was a real individual, and it locates her within her, her uh, genealogy and family and clan so that we know exactly uh, who she was, or at least at that time they did. We don't have access to those records today, but at the time this was written, they did. And they went to her to inquire of what God um, God's plan for them would be. Now, whenever we read a passage in the Scripture related to a prophetess, the question always comes up as to uh, why does God use a prophetess, and what is the significance of that, especially in terms of a contemporary debate that has arisen mostly in liberal churches but is leaking into conservative churches over the last decade or so, and that has to do with the ordination of women uh, and women pastors based on First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 8 through 12. A pro- it's important to understand what a prophet was, what a priest was, and what a pastor is. A pastor in the New Testament is not the New Testament version of a prophet. They're very different roles and very different responsibilities. Same thing with a the priest. They had different roles and different responsibilities. And so only when we understand those distinctions can we properly understand what is what takes place here. Within the Old Testament, there are only three prophetesses that are portrayed positively. Miriam, the sister of Moses. Deborah, who was also a judge of Israel in the early chapters of the book of Judges. And Huldah in this chapter. In all three cases, these women are portrayed positively. And they have positive ministries. The role of a prophet, or let me say the role of a prophetess, was the same as a role of a prophet, and that is simply to be the voice for God that God used in communicating specific revelation to his people. A prophet generally was not interpreting what God said. He was simply, this is what God said, thus says the Lord. He, the prophet was a mouthpiece. The prophetess was a mouthpiece. She's not interpreting what God said. She is not teaching uh, the scriptures. She is simply stating what God said. I use a comparison uh, many times of what I experience when I go over to uh, Ukraine, and uh, my uh, translator over there is usually a woman uh, by the name of uh, uh, Margaret. Now, Margaret, for the most part, every now and then we have to sort of rein her in, because she listens to all these pastors and translates all these pastors, and sometimes she takes a little, uh, she knows her audience, so she'll add a little explanation to make sure they understand it. Um, But Margaret is just absolutely fabulous in the way she's able to take what we say in English and translate it into uh, the language of of the hearer, into Russian. But she is not taking authority upon herself. What she is saying is what I say or what Jim Meyer says or one of the other pastors says. She is not the source of the information or the content of the language. She is not teaching the class. I'm teaching the class. She is not the one who is exhorting or challenging the people. I am the one who is doing that. She is simply a a mouthpiece. 
That's the difference. A prophet was could be compared to the role of a translator in that type of situation. The translator is not the authority. The translator is not doing the teaching. The translator is only communicating what someone else tells them uh, to communicate. A teacher is someone who takes the content and further explains it or develops it. And that is a basic difference between a teacher and a, 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 uh, a prophet. And so the role of a prophetess was simply to be that mouthpiece for God, same as with the prophet. So she is not teaching, she's not interpreting, she's not explaining the word of God. So there's no, no conflict between uh, the Old Testament and, uh, and, and the fact that there were legitimate prophetesses and the fact that Paul in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 says, I do not allow a woman to teach, neither do I allow a woman to have authority over men. So this limits the role in one sense that women can have in the church. They are not to be the teachers of the word of God and they are not to have authority uh, over men. This does not apply. It's not a conflict at all with God's use of women to be prophetesses either in the Old Testament or Philip's daughter, Philip had six daughters who were prophetesses in the, in the book of Acts because their function is very different from that of a pastor teacher. And so <clears throat> Holder then is going to confirm uh, what God said in the Pentateuch. She is going to uh, state a message from God that confirms that. She's not making this up on her own. She's not uh, interpreting things or applying the law. She is giving new revelation uh, that God has given her. Verse 16, we read, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Wrath and anger terms expressing the severity of God's judgment. So that is the message of and the confirmation of condemnation. But also we have a statement of grace towards King Josiah because of his devotion and obedience to the Lord. And when we get to the end of this episode and we read the evaluation that God gives of Josiah, God says that he is the most obedient of all the kings to God. He, so his, in terms of his spiritual life, he surpasses even Hezekiah, whom we have talked about already. So God says in verse 18, But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me. This was simply uh, the overt manifestation in their culture of their response to something horrible that would take place. He's not setting a standard that if you're going to... Uh, feel sorry for your sins, you need to tear your clothes or rip them off. That is a cultural uh, a manifestation of humility. God says, because you humbled yourself, I heard you, and this, this judgment will not come in your time. 
Verse 20, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all this calamity. And the word for calamity is the Hebrew word rot for evil. You will not see all of this evil which I will bring upon uh, this place. Now, the king has a response. We read about this in the next couple of verses, and what he is going to do then is, even though God has pronounced the certainty of judgment, Josiah realizes that even though judgment is coming, even though there's going to be a time in the not-too-distant future of unprecedented horror and violence against the southern kingdom of Judah as the Babylonians would come in and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, even though that was certain, Josiah doesn't sit back in negativity and just go, oh, woe is us, isn't this terrible, isn't this horrible? He knows that he needs to prepare his people spiritually for what is going to come. And the only thing that will do that is the word of God. Now, we can make application uh, to our own nation and our own circumstances. We don't know, though, that uh, with any certainty that horrible things are going to happen in the future. If some of the policies that are set forth by our present administration do continue, though, in terms of the unprecedented uh, and continuous printing of money to fund the debt and the unprecedented um, spending of money and just just uh, running the debt up in, in unbelievable, unbelievably astronomical uh, figures, then we can look forward to some pretty uh, terrible things happening as the monetary system could very well collapse and we can't even fathom what the consequences of that would be. That's the worst case scenario. There could be a change of heart in the people of this nation, just as there have been in other nations, and things could just as well go in the other direction. Nothing is set in stone, at least it hasn't been revealed to us if it has. So there is always hope. But the hope that Josiah offers is even in the context of knowing with certainty the judgment that was coming. He doesn't react in negativity and go, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe this is going to happen. How can a loving God do this? He remains humble, and he understands that he needs to prepare his people for the horrible things that are coming. And so he is going to have the word of God read to them so they understand why it's going to happen and can prepare themselves spiritually to endure the discipline. Verse 3, Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. Notice the three different uh, words that are used there in reference to the Torah. His commandments, that is the mandates, his testimonies, related to how to worship him and his statutes. This would be in reference to the uh, the civil laws that were there. That he, he, he um, uh, makes a covenant. He renews the vow to be obedient to God and to fully and completely uh, apply the law to the nation of Judah. So it's with, it's with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And then we just have a summary statement at the end of the verse. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. So it's not just the king, but everybody gets on board. Now this is explained in a little more detail over in Second Chronicles 34-32, where we read in an, an expansion of this idea, 
that Josiah made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So he forces the issue. He doesn't force their volition, but he brings it to a volitional point, and he says, just as Joshua did uh, before they entered, uh, or after they had uh, uh, entered the land, and uh, he was about to die, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, but who are you going to serve? Are you going to apply the law, or are you going to be... Uh, in re- in rebellion, and Josiah makes the same kind of uh, thing uh, take place here. He challenges the people and he says, "Are you going to follow me in complete obedience to the law, or are you going to be disobedient?" So he forces the issue, and the people have to take a stand, and they do take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jer- Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. They follow Him. In his leadership. Trust me, there's nothing worse than being a leader and turning around and realizing that there's nobody back there. (laughs) The only thing worse than that is being a leader and realizing you got so far out in front of your troops that they think you're the enemy. (laughs) So a couple of things I want you to note here. First of all, the word of God was taught and understood. The Bible teaches truth. They understood what had been revealed to Moses and what the consequences were going to be. They understood that the Bible presents an exclusive look at truth. This is what really causes most people in our culture to vibrate uh, in such hostility today, is that they reject the exclusivity of God's word. They reject the fact that the Word of God says, says basically, God, God says basically, it's my way or the highway. It's my way or eternal condemnation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. It is that exclusivity that drives the rebellious creature nuts because he wants to think that he knows more uh, than he actually does and he knows better than God. The second thing that we see illustrated here is that people have a choice. That choice is to obey or disobey. It emphasizes volition on the part of the people in the culture. It's not just the leadership, it is also the people. That was abundantly illustrated in the book of Judges. The book of Judges focuses first on the failure of the leadership. And there was always a failure. It got increasingly worse through the period of the Judges. No failure was mentioned about the first judge, Othniel. But as you begin to read through the book and you see the uh, failure of Barak to to assert his masculine role as the leader, and he won't go into battle unless Deborah is with him, and we see the increased uh, uh, feminism uh, that develops among the men and the masculinity of the women, which is typical in a pagan culture. And then you go to uh, Gideon, and Gideon is cowering there, on the threshing floor, afraid of the Midianites that are coming. And then even when God clearly tells him what to do and he knows it's God and he offers a sacrifice to God, even then he still wants God to, uh, he still wants to play this game with God about the uh, dew on the, on the fleece. He's not trying to figure out God's will. He's trying to come up with something too hard for God to do so that he doesn't have to do what God told him to do. He, He really doesn't want to obey God's commandment to go defeat the Midianites. And then we come to Jephthah, who's become so paganized in the culture that he thinks he can bargain with God by offering uh, a sacrifice of his daughter. And then we get to Samson, of whom nothing good was said. 
Well, that's the indictment of the leadership. And then in the next couple of chapters, you see the indictment of the priesthood that has become almost totally corrupt and the indictment of the people who have become so uh, hardened against sin and against violence and that they too have become uh, are living in a way that is no different from uh, the pagan Canaanite cultures uh, that had preceded them. And so we see this same kind of trend taking place within this time period uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah. You have two kings that have taken the people forward, and it is on the basis of their leadership the people have followed. But as soon as those leaders were gone, the, the, the volition of the people collapsed because the next leaders that came along were leaders who promoted evil, and the people just went along with, with them. You have the evil of Ahaz, and then you have the godly king Hezekiah. Hezekiah is followed by his ungodly son Manasseh and his son Ammon, and they're followed by Josiah. And then Josiah is followed by his three horrible evil sons who take the nation into its final days when it is destroyed by the Babylonians. The people had a choice, though, throughout this entire period, And the people's choice was whether or not they would worship the Lord, put him first, and obey him. And because the people rejected the word of God, the nation came under the judgment of the five stages of discipline outlined in the Mosaic Law. And even though there is not a direct one-to-one correspondence between Israel and the United States, Israel was a covenant nation with God. The United States does not have that kind of a a covenant with God, there are certain uh, trends or patterns or similarities that we see with cultures that those cultures, those civilizations, those nations that reject God's word and get mired in paganism end up in self-destruction that follows patterns that are very similar to those that God outlined to the Israelites. They're not the same thing because the U.S. and France or Germany or Britain or whomever are not in a that kind of a covenant relationship with God. Nevertheless, God has built in these kinds of uh, consequences to the uh, essence of reality. So the people have a choice to obey or disobey, and here they choose to obey. But what I want you to notice is that obedience means action. But it can be either a mental action or a physical action, or in a lot of cases it involves both. When God's word challenges us to change, as Paul talked about in Romans 12:2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it starts with the mind, but it often ends with changed behavior. That was what the writer of that, that's what God was getting at in his evaluation reports in the seven letters to the seven churches. In Revelation, each of those ended with, uh, for those who, that had a negative evaluation, they were to repent, which means to change. So an understanding of God's word isn't just some academic exercise where we learn great things about God, but it doesn't impact the way we live. That which changes the way we think should change the way we live. So obedience means action. It involves first mental change and then secondly, overt change. And we see the overt change that takes place in the following 
verses. Now, this is a detailed study that I think needs to be handled uh, as a whole, because what happens here, just to give you a preview, is that when, when they began to cleanse the nation, they start at the temple. And then you have three or four things that happen with the temple. And then they move out from the temple to Judah. And there's three or four things that are changed in relationship to Judah. And then once Judah has been cleansed, then they head north into what was the northern kingdom. And there is a cleansing that takes place in the northern kingdom. And once that is finished... Then Josiah comes back to the southern kingdom, and now that they have literally cleansed the nation of the sin of idolatry, what's going to take place? Then they're going to observe the greatest observance of Passover that the southern kingdom of Judah ever observed, going back to the time of Samuel. And if you remember, if you remember in our study of the Passover, What has to be done in order to prepare to observe the Passover? Remember, the Passover day was the 14th of Nisan, which is a spring month. It's comparable to our time in March and April. And before Passover was observed, because the first day of Passover was the first day of the week-long observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of the leaven had to be removed from the house. All of the leaven had to be removed as a sign of the cleansing, the ritual cleansing of the house from sin. And so what you see in this pattern here is, first of all, there is a cleansing of the nation, a literal physical cleansing of the nation from the leaven of idolatry, apostasy, and the perversion that went along with all of those false religions. And then they're going to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the reality occurred first, And then the ritual occurs second, which symbolizes what has just occurred physically and literally in the nation. Once they have cleansed the nation of of the evil of apostasy and idolatry, then they're prepared spiritually to observe the Passover. And when the text goes into all the details of the the Passover and how it's observed, which is found in the uh, Second Chronicles passage, it tells us that this is the greatest observance of Passover that, that ever occurred. And that is because the hearts of the people had been truly turned back to God through the teaching of his word. That is why the teaching of God's word is so vital and so important, because that's the only way that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's the only way we come to understand the grace of God. That's the only way we come to understand all that God has provided for us. And the response of the person who hears the word of God is the response of Josiah, which is to humble ourselves under the authority of God. And that means learning the word of God and applying the word of God in every area of our life. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to go back into the Old Testament and see the example that we have uh, in the time of Josiah of a king who was not arrogant, but one who was truly humble and who recognized the authority of your word and applied it uh, first and foremost in his own life, but then to the life of the nation. We also see how the people responded, that there cannot be a true, genuine revival among the people in a nation unless there is a change to humility, a a change away from arrogance and independence 
from you to a change of humility to your word, and that it is the revelation of your word that is the ultimate cause of the change in a nation, the change of a people, and the change of individuals. Father, this starts at the cross, recognizing that we are sinners in need of salvation, recognizing that there's nothing we can do to gain, to earn, or to deserve salvation, but that we must rely upon you to provide for that. And that was done through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to die on the cross for our sins, that by believing in him we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, uh, we pray that this, they, this would be their opportunity to do so, that perhaps they've never really understood the issue in salvation, that the issue is that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy. All we need to do is to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe in him, and we will have eternal life. Father, we pray for everyone here that we would be challenged by your word and that we would humble ourselves under uh, the teaching of your word to follow your word in every area of our life, that we might not be uh, characterized by arrogance but humility towards you, and that you would strengthen us in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for our uh, closing prayer. I mean, our closing hymn, rather.